Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of First Timothy, we are getting back into our sermon series through the book of First Timothy uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to read First Timothy chapter one verses twelve through seventeen. Again, First Timothy chapter one verses twelve through seventeen. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word, and I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The sense of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word, of, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to uh, teach us his word this morning that we might be sanctified by his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you once again that you give it to us, uh, that you don't leave us in the dark to grope around and try to figure out who you are and to try to find on our own, as it were, the way of salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, you don't uh, hide your will from us, but you reveal it to us, what you would have us to do and how you would have us to live to your glory. You give that all to us in your word. And so we ask once again that you would uh, feed us. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask that you would, uh, just as we prayed for our daily bread uh, just a moment ago, that you would also feed us with your word. And that you'd work in us by your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from it. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Uh, as I said, we're getting back into our series through First Timothy this morning. Uh, we had just started that uh, as right around the time when the coronavirus had broken out here uh, in our part of the world. And so uh, we were so rudely interrupted by a world, by a world pandemic but I thought it might be good for us to get back into uh, our study at this point. And I thought since it's been almost two months, I think, since we looked at it, uh, close to two months, I thought maybe a, a brief review of, of the book in general might be of help so we don't just jump in the deep end without uh, some preparation. First uh, Timothy is one of uh, the epistles that is often referred to as the pastoral epistles. That also includes Second Timothy and the book of Titus. Uh, these books are written by the Apostle Paul. They were addressed to two of his uh, protege or apprentice pastors, uh, his sons in the faith, so to speak. And he wrote these books. That's why they're called the pastoral epistles. He wrote these books in order to instruct these men in how they are to conduct themselves in the ministry in Christ's church. In this particular book, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul gives us essentially the purpose statement for the book. And very often, not always, but very often, especially in the epistles, the writer will kind of give you a statement saying, here's why I'm writing this book. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, about the middle of the book, verses 14 to 15, Paul tells us why he wrote this book. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, and here it is, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he wants Timothy to know, as as the minister there, as the pastor there in Paul's stead, how he was to behave, how he was to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, our denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA, we have something you may or may not know called the Book of Church Order, and that book, along with the Westminster Standards, is part of our denominational constitution. It's our constitutional documents there, those things. And that book, among other things, what it does is it outlines the way that things are to be done in our churches. That book includes detailed instructions and guidelines for such things as church government or polity, church discipline, and the public worship of the church. Those are pretty important things for a church to have a clear understanding and and guidance on. Well, you could say that in a sense, 1 Timothy along with 2 Timothy and Titus are kind of the original book of church order, the Bible's, so to speak, book or books of church order. Here Paul tells Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy how to guard the church against false teachers in the first chapter, verses 3 through 11, the verses we looked at just prior to our text this morning. He teaches Timothy here how to fight the good fight in a ministry in verse 18 or wage the good warfare as he, as he puts it, he teaches Timothy how the churches in public worship especially are to pray together in the early verses of chapter 2. How we are to pray for kings and all who are in high position, all those kinds of things. So here he also teaches Timothy how the women of the church are to conduct themselves. That's chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. Uh, how the uh, the elders, what the qualifications are for elders and deacons in chapter 3. How Timothy, as a pastor in the church, was to treat the older men and the widows of the church, and how the church was to treat ruling and teaching elders, among other things. All these things are in this short book of First Timothy, how the church was to do these things, um, what kinds of things the church needed to do. In the previous passage we looked at all those weeks ago, in the first 11 verses of First Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul's concern there, as is elsewhere in some parts of the book, his concern was to instruct Timothy, to give him a charge, so to speak, of how to deal with false teachers in the church. How to deal with false teachers who had made inroads into the church there in Ephesus. Now, this was not a hypothetical. You know, sometimes when you're preaching passages like that in the church, you can sort of, I think, be a little too secure in yourself and say, well... We will never have to deal with false teaching in our church because it's us. You know, everybody thinks that. Uh, but these things are not hypothetical. They're things that we are, especially the elders of the church, need to be mindful of. But in Timothy's case, it was already happening. And so in the first 11 verses, as well as elsewhere in this book, he tells him, here's how you are to deal with these false teachers that had made inroads there. And, and again, this was something that had to get nipped in the bud. And he tells Timothy to be very direct to go there and command them not to teach these things anymore. This is something that was to be, uh, it's important in, in Timothy's day as well as in ours for the spiritual health and well-being of the church. False teaching is not something to be tolerated. It needs to be dealt with head on. Now, these false teachers in, in Timothy's church there in Ephesus were in some ways they were legalists. And that's a word that sometimes 
is hard to, to define and understand, but they were legalists of some kind. They fancied themselves, verse 7 says, uh, that they were teachers of the law. They were experts, so, so they thought, in God's law. They, but Paul, Paul tells Timothy that they did not know what they were talking about. Not only that, they were not using God's law, no pun intended, lawfully or rightly. Verse 8 it seems as if it's hard to kind of reverse engineer and figure out exactly what they were saying, but it seems as if they were seeking in some way to be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, which we know from Paul's writings elsewhere, that's an impossibility. What does Romans 3.20 say? Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by the works of the law, no human being or no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's God's sight. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. One of the law's chief functions or purposes, one of the main reasons God gave it, was to show us our sin like a mirror. The the law was not given that we might look at it and say, oh, look how good I am. Of course, I've you know, like like the rich young ruler in Mark 10. All these I've done since my youth. And Jesus, you almost imagine Jesus shaking his head at him. It says he looked at him and loved him and and went on to further instruct him and show him he hadn't kept it. He hadn't kept God's commandments and neither have we. That's that's half the point of the law is to drive us to Christ for salvation, to show us, again, as in a mirror, here's the ways that you have rebelled against God's law, both in your relationship to God as well as to your neighbor. Now, our text this morning uh, that we're going to look at from 1 Timothy 1 is Paul's brief testimony of some, of some sense of his conversion to Christ and his calling as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's easy for us, it's easy for me even as I study through this, to overlook the connection between this passage and Paul's argument against the false teachers that goes before it in the first 11 verses. In fact, I've preached this very passage not that long ago around Christmas time, not as part of this series, uh, but, you know, kind of in a vacuum on a series of why Jesus came. Because this is what he says, Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Well, uh, it's easy to look at passages like this in a vacuum, unrelated, unconnected to the verses that go before and after it. But that's a mistake in some ways. Paul is not, as some commentators say, when you, if you read commentate, commentaries on these verses, they act as if, you know, Paul had a train of thought going about false teachers and then suddenly in verse 12, it's like, you ever lose your place? And we did it in the song today. You know, I, I do it sometimes when I'm, I have lost my place in preaching before and gotten my pages mixed up. Imagine how stressful that is. And all of a sudden I'm in point three. Whoop, wait a minute. You know, have to kind of figure out a way to do that to, to not make it look so bad. But, but Paul, Paul is not losing his place here. Paul did not forget his train of thought. This was not an aside or a digression from his argument against the false teachers. It's actually a part of his argument. It's actually exhibit A in his argument against these legalists. William Mounts, great commentator, writes this. These verses are an intimate look at Paul as he holds up his personal testimony as an example of God's mercy and grace. They are not a digression, but are the heart of his argument. They are the heart of the argument that Paul is making. Both Paul's conversion to Christ on the Damascus Road and his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ are examples of the superabounding grace of God in Jesus Christ toward sinners. 
even toward, as Paul says in the King James, even toward the chief of sinners, Paul himself. Now, you might be familiar, uh, many of you, with John Bunyan, not the guy with the axe and the blue ox, John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, the great Puritan writer whose most famous book maybe some of you have read a number of times, maybe even. He wrote uh, a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's easily one of the most uh, best-selling books of all time outside of the Bible itself. Some some have ventured to say, and I, I can't confirm this to be true or not, that it is the best-selling book other than the Bible itself in history. It has been translated into numerous, you know, hundreds of languages printed in many different places down through the years. It was written in 1678, and it has been an enduring source of comfort and encouragement and edification for countless believers all over the world since it was first published back then in the 17th century. And what that book is about, what Pilgrim's Progress is about, it's an allegory. In, in the, the title or in the opening page of the book, it says it was delivered as an assimilitude of a dream. In other words, he's, it's, it's painted as a vision, an allegory of sorts, as if it were a dream. But it's an allegory of the conversion and the life of a Christian. It paints... In, in the form of a story, what it's like to become a Christian and what it's like to follow Christ, especially the conversion of the main character, Pilgrim, in, in the book. Well, Bunyan, you might know, spent a number of years in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ in England. And during that time, he also wrote other things as well. And one of the things he wrote was his spiritual autobiography and testimony. And what he did, he essentially borrowed the title for that book from our text, from verses 14 to 15, and he entitled that book, Grace Abounding Toward the Chief of Sinners. Sometimes it's abbreviated as just Grace Abounding, but he took his title from our text this morning in verses 14 and 15. I commend, I commend both those books to you if you have not read them. Pilgrim's Progress, which is, a, you know, a, a, um, Allegory of, of conversion in the Christian life, as well as abounding grace, or grace abounding, which is the actual story of, of Bunyan's own conversion and uh, life of faith. And, and so I have, just as Bunyan borrowed the title of that book from this text, I'm borrowing the title for our sermon from his book. So I guess turnabout is fair play this morning. But the point of our text and the point of Bunyan's books is if anyone would doubt the grace of God, and despair of God's willingness to save sinners, Bunyan, like Paul before him, would point to his own conversion and calling as proof positive of God's superabounding grace and his willingness to save even the worst of sinners, which Bunyan, like Paul, thought he himself was. Now, the first thing you might look at in our text, might notice from our text, is what Paul does in verses 12 to 15 is he tells us briefly of his conversion to Christ and his calling to be an apostle. And what he does, the reason he does it here and the way he does it here is he is presenting his own story of conversion, his own testimony as to his conversion and calling as proof of God's abounding grace toward sinners. His testimony is proof of God's abounding or superabounding grace toward sinners. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul says, to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, uh, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost or chief. Now notice there's some things missing here. Not missing as if Paul made a mistake, but what does Paul not do? This didn't strike me until I was really, even until today, thinking about this text. What does Paul not focus on that we probably in our day would probably be tempted to focus on? The more fantastic outward elements of the story in Acts chapter 9, he never says, here's proof that God saves sinners. Jesus confronted me personally on the Damascus Road, blinded me, you know, knocked me off my horse, did all these miraculous signs, so to speak. He doesn't bring that up at all. Not that it doesn't matter, but that's not the point. What else is missing here? There's no pride. There's no pride on Paul's part. There's no boasting. He's not saying, well, of course God saved me. Look, it's me. It's the exact opposite of his point, isn't it? He's the last one God should have saved, according to Paul, and yet God did. No pride, no boasting. Paul claims no credit whatsoever for his salvation, much less for his calling to be an apostle. Paul knows he wasn't worthy of his calling. He didn't earn, that is to say, his calling. It was all by God's grace. What does Paul do here? He gives thanks or rejoices in Christ Jesus our Lord who had strengthened or enabled him uh, in these things when he himself, Paul would say, was utterly powerless to do any of it. Paul was powerless to save himself. He didn't used to think that until Christ showed him. He was powerless to save himself. He was utterly unqualified to be used by Christ as his apostle And yet, what did Jesus do? Jesus saved Paul and called him, not just to the ministry in some general sense, but to be an apostle as one born, Paul says, out of due time. So not only was Paul the least likely convert to Christ ever, but his calling as an apostle to serve Jesus Christ in that way was even more so. You know, it would have been been enough if Paul was just saved. The church, the early church, would have been just as amazed at his conversion if that's all he ever did. If Paul had been converted and just begun begun being a tent maker and left it at that, it would have been an amazing testimony. And yet Christ called him to serve him as an apostle. In verse 14, Christ, he says, appointed him to his service even though he had been, what? A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or violent opponent. Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, he, he calls himself, he's kind of going over his past life, his past accomplishments and things in Judaism, and he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, in his past life, a Pharisee. A Pharisee who was so zealous for the law of God and for Judaism that he was a persecutor, as he says here, a persecutor of the church. He sought of righteousness under the law, and he says according to that he was blameless. According to the law, as far as he knew, outwardly speaking, he thought that he was serving God in all these things, and yet he wasn't. At the time he thought he was doing God's will, and yet he wasn't. In all of his rage against the Lord Jesus Christ that we read of in the book of Acts, early in the chapters there, in all of that rage against Jesus Christ, he... Paul came to find that he had actually been blaspheming the Lord of glory. 
that he had been blaspheming the Messiah himself. In his persecution of the church, he was actually persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember what Paul says, or what Jesus says to Paul in Acts 9? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting whom? Me. And who are you, Lord? Jesus, whom you are, he says it twice. Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He was persecuting the church, but Jesus took it quite personally. He was, he says in the ESV, an insolent, we don't use that word much. I don't think I've ever used that word except reading this text, but an insolent opponent. The word means violent. He was a violent man in his persecution of the church. Paul's persecution of God's church, of Christ's church, was violent and wicked in nature. In Galatians 1.13, another place where Paul kind of gives his testimony, he tells us, he tells the Galatians, he says, For you have heard, Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, here it is, how I persecuted the church of God violently and sought or tried to destroy it. It wasn't a sport to Paul. You know, some people like to debate and argue. Some believers, some Christians think it's a spiritual gift to debate and argue. Nothing wrong with debating per se, but uh, they, they think winning an argument is, is somehow a spiritual gift. Um, and we all do that. But Paul, Paul wasn't that at all. Paul might have mocked it. Paul might have argued with the Christians, but Paul wanted to wipe it out violently. That's what Paul was. We talk about the persecuted church in places like Nigeria. Well, that, Paul was not far off of that. Paul wanted them dead. He wanted the faith wiped out. Now think about that. You know, Paul, you know, quote, remember Muhammad Ali, some of you are old enough like me, and he said, I'm a bad man. Well, Paul was a bad, Saul, that is, was a bad man. He was a scary man if you were a Christian. You know, there's a you know kind of an old stereotype. You see some people, you walk on the other side of the street. You saw Saul, you ran. Paul wanted you dead if you were a Christian. He wanted you wiped out. Now think about that for a minute before you think about Paul's conversion. The Lord Jesus Christ could have justly and righteously struck Paul down, struck him dead. He could have judged him as he would later do with another violent enemy of God's church in King Herod in Acts chapter 12. But that's not what he did. Remember King Herod? We talked about him recently. King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, it says in Acts chapter 12. And then he took Peter, and he was going to do the same thing. The people loved this show. And what did God do to him? What did the Lord Jesus Christ do to him? From heaven, from the right hand of God, he struck him dead. The Lord struck him and delivered his church in doing that. He could have done the same thing to Saul. And he would have been just in doing so, and yet he didn't do that. Instead of death and condemnation, Saul of Tarsus received mercy. Verse 13. Instead of judgment, the grace of our Lord overflowed, Paul says, or superabounded, more literally, toward him in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. Paul says he had acted ignorantly in his unbelief before his conversion, and so where his sin abounded, the grace of God overflowed even more abundantly. Now, I can't help but think of, of Isaiah chapter 6. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? I won't read the whole thing right now, but I'll, I'll uh, Reader's Digest it for you. You know, He has a vision of the Lord, uh, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's hard for us to picture how big this must have looked to him 
in this vision, and the, and the, the seraphim, the burning ones, were calling out back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says the threshold and the doorpost of the place shook. Think about that. The temple, the huge temple, was shaking from the voice of these of these angels and at the, at, the, at the presence of God in this vision. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, I'm undone. It's hard to translate these things with enough force. Woe is me, like we think of, if you're old enough like me, maybe you watched Hee Haw, woe is me, you know, woe is me, it's like, oh, I'm having a bad day. No, a woe from a prophet, and Jesus pronounced woes in the New Testament as well, was a message of doom and judgment. When he says, woe is me, he's saying, I'm a dead man walking. I'm doomed. God is about to strike me down. Woe is me, I'm, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of them. Everywhere I look, there's unclean lips. Everywhere I look, there's sin in the mirror and everywhere else. I've got nowhere to go. And yet, what did God do? God didn't strike him down. He thought he was going to get struck down, but he didn't. God, in the vision, one of the seraphim took one of the coals from the altar, touched his lips and said, your sin is atoned for. And then God says, who shall I send? And what does he say? Me. Same thing with Paul. Paul, when, when Jesus blinded him on the Damascus road, he doesn't say so much in so many words. You have to think that Paul thought he was a dead man. That he had, he, he was going to get what he had coming. And what he had coming wasn't salvation and being called to be an apostle. This was not Jesus rewarding him for being such a good guy. This was, he thought, going to be his judgment, and yet Christ saved him by his grace and even appointed him to be an apostle. Now notice the grace of God that he talks about here in this text did not just justify Paul, but also sanctified him as well. He says there in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed or superabounded, uh, what does he say, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Not just faith, but also the love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of Christ changed Paul's life. He didn't earn any of that. It was all an act of God, a work of God's grace. Just as sanctification is the work of God's grace in your life if you are a Christian this morning. And so here in verse 15, Paul gives us the first of, of what are five trustworthy sayings, as he, he calls it, that are found throughout the pastoral epistles. There are four other ones. I'll leave you to find them. That's your homework. There's at least five. Uh, here he summarizes the testimony, his testimony of Christ in a pithy way, kind of a memorable way. And I believe this is something that Paul had memorized and I think that the way it's written, you know, this is a, a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance. I believe this is something Paul even would have us and have Timothy memorize. Because it's something that, as simple as it is, it's very easy for me, I don't know about you, it's easy for us to forget and lose sight of. And not keep in the front of our minds when you're serving Christ in your generation. And what is this first saying? It says, the saying, or the word literally, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, what is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So the, the basic thing is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he wouldn't have had to come otherwise. There was no reason for him to take on flesh and humble himself in the form of a servant, and to suffer all the things he did if he didn't come to save he could have just come to judge, but that's not what he did. And so I asked, based on our text this morning, do you doubt or even despair 
that God might be willing to save a sinner like you if you were to repent of your sins and turn to Christ by faith. Is that you? Are you sitting here listening even to the sound of my voice and listening to this text and saying, I know God saves other people, but why would God save me? I don't think you would say, he doesn't know what I've done. I think you would say, he knows better than I do my sins. Why would God save me? What would Paul tell you? He would say, God saved me. If he saved me, he's going to save you. Look at the conversion of Paul. That's what Paul himself, I believe, is even saying in our text. When Paul preached the gospel, no matter what opposition he, he encountered, being stoned and attacked and shipwrecked and all these things, this must have been in Paul's mind. God's going to save somebody. He saved me. Why call me to be an apostle? Why save me if he's not going to save others as well? If it's not you yourself, is there anyone whom you consider to be at this point, somehow beyond the reach of God's grace. Maybe a loved one you've been praying for for years and years, maybe decades. Someone you know and love whose life of sin and rebellion against God you think has somehow placed them beyond saving. Think of Paul's words here. Perhaps a person in high position, maybe a governor or even a president or someone else. And you think, well, you know, that'll never happen. God's never going to save them. My testimony to them can't matter anything. My prayers for them, why would God save them? Think about Paul. Think about Saul. God saves great people, and he saves people that no one's ever heard of. He saves sinners just the same. That's why Christ Jesus came. Well, notice the next thing that Paul does here in our text. It's not just give his testimony as the proof of God's abounding grace towards sinners, but he tells us of his own conversion and calling and tells us that they were set forth as a pattern, as a pattern for God's abounding grace towards sinners. Look at verse 16. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. He's saying, this is Paul saying, I think here's why God saved me. I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, In me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, according to Paul, Paul did not just receive mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ for his own benefit, as great as that was and as important as that was. No, more than that, Paul says he received mercy for this reason, he says, That in him, as the foremost or chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's conversion and salvation were meant to display the grace of God abounding towards sinners. They were meant to display Christ's perfect patience toward those who were going to believe. How many times and in how many ways in your former life Think about that. How many times and in how many ways might God have struck you down in judgment and done so justly before you came to faith in Christ? If you weren't raised in the faith, you could probably think of a thousand times, a thousand things you did that if God had struck you down and judged you right there and then on the spot, all you could have done was say God is just. And yet God saved, there's many people God does not save, and yet God saved you and God saved me. And he is to be praised for it. Do you ever consider his perfect patience and mercy toward you in saving you? He's more patient than we are. He's more patient than I am. 
this perfect or complete patience in those things. And not only was God's mercy towards Paul a display of that patience and abounding grace towards sinners, but it was also set forth, he says, as an example or a type or a pattern as well. In other words, it's as if Paul, when you were, maybe you have had little kids or grandkids, you try to teach them how to draw, and sometimes you teach them how to trace. You'll, you know, you put a blank piece of paper over something else, and you have them kind of look through it and trace the lines of what they're drawing. It's a way of practice, it's a pattern. It's a pattern, a way of showing someone how to do something. I think we are to trace our, the lines of our own conversion with Paul's. We are to say to ourselves as sinners, look, look what God did with Paul. Look how God had mercy upon Paul. And certainly he'll have mercy upon me as well if I turn to him through faith in Christ. John Stott writes the following. He says, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road has proved to be just that. It remains a standing source of hope to otherwise hopeless cases. Paul seems to speak to us across the centuries. Don't despair. Christ had mercy even on me, the worst of sinners. He can also have mercy on you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to be a trophy of God's abounding grace and an example of God's mercy to other people, to other sinners, to those who would believe on Christ for eternal life. As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10.17, he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in what? Boast in the Lord. Our testimony isn't really about us at all. All we did was the sinning part. If we're going to boast, we boast in Christ and his abounding mercy and grace towards us. Well, the last thing, and certainly not least in our text in verse 17, is, you know, Paul's conversion and testimony were not just the proof of God's abounding grace towards sinners. They were not just the pattern of God's abounding grace towards sinners, but that should lead to, to praise for God's abounding grace towards sinners. It's what he does here in verse 17. It's like Paul couldn't contain himself. Look at Verse 17, he says, To the king of, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like, think about, these weren't just empty words to Paul. When he was even writing a letter to Timothy, when he thought of his own conversion, in the midst of an argument against the false teachers to, to show how to deal with them, when he thinks of his own conversion to Christ, all he can do is praise God. Even with his pen, Paul's theology always led to doxology or praise. And this isn't like a one-time thing. Paul, this is Paul's, talk about a pattern. This is Paul's pattern that we find throughout his epistles. You know, Paul's, if you're going to talk about Paul having digressions, most of his digressions end up being praise. And so they're really not digressions or sidetracks at all. Paul's digressions are almost always doxological in nature. So, you know, if you're going to get off track, like we sometimes do, the best way, if you're going to get off the track, this is the way to do it. To praise God for his abounding grace toward you in Jesus Christ. Think about a couple examples. Romans 11, verse 36. Romans 11, 36. I'll give you the, the thumbnail sketch of Romans. For 11 chapters in Romans, the first 11 chapters, Paul is explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ in great detail. He's saying, here is what God has done by his grace in Jesus Christ to save sinners. He spends 11 chapters going through the entire thing, 
And then in chapter 12, which is called sometimes the hinge of the book, chapter 12 is where most of the practical application begins, where Paul starts to say, therefore, because of all this in the gospel, live this way differently. Live, live for Christ now this way. Before he can even get to that, what does he do? Romans 11.36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know, if we were writing Romans, thank God we weren't, we'd put that at the very end of the book. And there's a benediction towards the end as well. But before Paul can even say, hey, now here's how the gospel is supposed to change your life, he just praises God. Same pattern holds true in Ephesians chapter 3. It's the middle of the book. Ephesians is six chapters long. The first three chapters, here's another brief outline. He gives you the gospel. He says, here's what God has done to save sinners. And then chapters four through six, he says, here's how it should change how you live. But before he gets to that last part, what does he do? Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, right in the middle of the book. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This, this is Paul's pattern of praising God for his abundant grace towards sinners. May you and I more and more learn to praise our God and Savior for his abounding grace towards sinners like us, not just like Paul. And may God be pleased to use your testimony and mine, our testimony to his abounding grace toward us, May he use that to lead other sinners to the Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith as well. Amen. Let's, let's pray.